0: mentioned we're going to be looking together a little bit at the persecuted church at our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who suffer simply because they are followers of Jesus in 50 nations around the world there are there are more than 360 million Christians Brian I think there's a, a slide there that has the numbers on it yeah there we go thank you uh there's, there's more than 360 million Christians who live in places where they experience high levels of persecution just for following Jesus. So just to give you a little bit of a perspective on that number, the United States population is 329 million, so that's quite a bit more. And the population of Canada is 38 million, so that's nine times the population of Canada. Uh, are the people who are suffering around the world today because of their faith in Jesus in 50 nations of the world. The uh, open doors that that, uh, Jeremy will be mentioning uh, every year produces a world watch list, which is a uh, list of the nations of the world. Sarah will be talking to us a little bit as well about the nations of the world where suffering takes place. But let me just uh, give you a little bit of an idea of what Christians face in some of these parts of the world. In Iran, for being a follower of Jesus frequently leads to long prison sentences and often torture. In Pakistan, Christians are often charged with blasphemy against Allah, and the justice system there is very corrupt and seldom brings justice to those accused simply somebody making an accusation that doesn't like a Christian. I don't know how many of you followed the story of Asia Bibi, but she was a, a uh, Pakistani lady who was a believer in Jesus and was working for a, a non-Christian family. And they made the accusation that she was blaspheming Allah. She ended up in prison for nine years. Thankfully, she's out now and living... I think she's living in Europe. She was in Canada for a while, but anyway, not sure where she is. In Somalia, it's almost certain death if someone is found to be a follower of Jesus. In Eritrea, people are imprisoned in shipping containers in extreme cold and agonizing heat and treated like animals. In China, there are far more surveillance cameras than there are human beings and a social credit system that scores everyone on whether they carefully obey and support the communist government. They use face recognition uh, with these, I think it's 2.5 billion cameras that they have in China, using face recognition and, Mm -hmm. and a number for every person. So I've seen some videos of this face recognition. So they show these people walking down the street And there's a box around their face with a number over that box which is your number and that number correlates to the social credit system which tells the government exactly what you're doing and whether or not you like the government and are supporting them in north korea followers of jesus often end up in labor camps where they are starved and worked to death so that's just A few of the nations, there's lots of other nations where there's plenty of persecution and people die or are imprisoned or persecuted for their faith. Let me just read to you a couple of scriptures uh, that relate to that. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, and so it hates you. And then Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Notice that word blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 12 and following, Peter writes, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So just thinking about those scriptures, one of the things that we can pray for our suffering brothers and sisters is that they would have a sense of the glory of God And the blessing of God upon their lives in the midst of their persecution. And then let me read to you from the faith chapter. This is uh, um, Hebrews chapter 11. And it says this By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. Now, if it stopped there, it would be a really uh, encouraging thing to say, wow, everybody's winning. That's great. But in the mi- that stops in the middle of a verse. The rest of the verse says this, but others... "...trusted God and were tortured, preferring to die rather than turn from God and be free. They placed their hope in the resurrection to a better life. Some were mocked, their backs were cut open with whips, others were chained in dungeons. Some died by stoning, some were sawn in half, others were killed with the sword. Some went about in skins of sheep and goats, hungry, oppressed, and mistreated. They were too good for this world, they wandered over deserts and mountains hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these people we have mentioned received God's approval because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised, for God had far better things in mind for us that would also benefit them, for they can't receive the prize at the end of the race until we finish the race. And then finally, one other verse, Hebrews 13, 3 just a call to us, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Well, let me just now give you a a few comments about the nation of Afghanistan. We're gonna be taking some time to pray in a few minutes uh, after some others share and Afghanistan, the flag is right at the back middle there, is one of the nations that we will be praying for. Uh, North Korea has been number one on the world watch list for years. Afghanistan was number two, actually. So Afghanistan has been a extremely dangerous place for Christians to live. Uh, But now Afghanistan moved up to number one on that list not because North Korea got nicer, but because Afghanistan got worse with the takeover of the Taliban. And so it's an extremely dangerous place. The score is 98.33 out of 100. In other words, that's the extremity of the score. They have six different areas that they use for scoring a nation uh, that relate to to violence, church life, national life, community life, family life, and private life. And each of those is scored out of 16.7, and the total of those is 100. And, and uh, in Afghanistan, al- almost all of those are 16.7, right at the very top of the list. There are 38 million people there. The main religion is Islam. And there are a few thousands of Christians, many of whom have fled now because especially the Christians who had been believers for some time were known to the Taliban, and so now the Taliban is hunting them down, and when they find them, they simply execute them. Uh, It's impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. Leaving Islam is considered shameful, and Christian converts face dire consequences if their faith is discovered. Either they must flee or they will be killed. This was true before the Taliban takeover, but the situation has become much more dangerous for believers this year, because the Taliban will make sure that the Islamic rules and customs, or Sharia law, are implemented and kept. Christian converts don't have any option but to obey them. The situation there made headlines, as you know, as they advanced and captured the capital in August of last year. Um, For Christians, there were basically no freedoms to lose. The uh, Afghans who were not believers had some freedoms before the Taliban took over, but Christians did not. And so it wasn't a matter of losing freedoms, it was simply a matter of moving into a much more severe persecution. For instance, the, uh, the Taliban is now the government, and so they have access to all the documentation in the country, which includes the documentation for all the Christians uh, that may help identify those Christians. So let me just share with you two quick little stories about people in Afghanistan, two different ladies. For one thing, the women and the children uh, often suffer terribly. The men are often simply executed. Uh, The women and children are often left alone or or suffer terribly. The young girls are often captured and taken away to be forced to be a bride for one of the Taliban leaders or sold into sex slavery. This lady, who's not not her real name, Zabi, uh, says, I feel alone. Uh, but she's not from the country that she's living in right now. She's from Afghanistan and is running for her life. What am I supposed to do, she asks. When the Taliban took over in 2021, Zabi knew exactly what it meant for her and other Christians. Her father and brother had both found Jesus in Afghanistan, but when the Taliban found out about them, they came and took them away and they were never seen again. Zabi worked for international aid organizations in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban for the first time in the 2000s. Her work was important and she was able to save a bit of money but also it made her a target when the Taliban took over full control. She's single, quite young and well educated, says an open doors partner. She was active in the area of human rights and therefore a target for the Taliban. They may know that she's a Christian already. She knew that when the Taliban were in charge, her life would be in danger, and so with her mother, she fled the country to the place where she now lives as a refugee. When the Taliban took over in, in August, uh, the international organizations departed, and I was left behind, she said. My mother and I managed to cross the border into another country, but that doesn't mean she's safe. Far from it. Our situation is desperate, she says. I have money in my bank account, but I can't access it from here. I have a visa, but it will expire soon. What will happen to me? I don't know. I'm praying I can leave this country and go somewhere safe. I may have to go into hiding or I'll be deported to Afghanistan. I may be killed if that happens. We don't have extra food and no clothes. We can't pay the rent of the apartment we're staying in. This is the reality for believers in Afghanistan, they face a choice between staying in the Taliban's country and facing death as soon as they're discovered, or they flee to a new country where they face an uncertain future with little hope and the constant threat of being sent back to Afghanistan. I feel alone and helpless, as Abby says. I worked for these organizations for years and now they won't help me. What am I supposed to do? I feel depressed. If I'm honest, I can only think about survival. How are my mother and I gonna live? Thankfully, God led our frontline partners, that's the uh, Open Doors frontline partners, to Zabi, and they are now in regular contact with her. We've encouraged her, prayed for her, given her food, helped her with rent and basic funds so she's safe and able to survive. Thank God for your food and clothes deliveries, your financial support, your prayers and encouragement, she says, you're a strand of hope to me there's a chance I may live. Open Doors will continue to help, although we don't know what her future will hold. Will she flee to a third country, build a life there, work for the human rights of the Afghan people? Will she go into hiding in the country where she is now, living as an illegal immigrant? Will she be sent back to Afghanistan, or a risk of being martyred? Only God knows, the Open Doors partner said, she's very depressed, she's grateful for the support, but it's like being happy that someone showed up to the funeral of a loved one. I thought, wow, isn't that a significant thought? She's grateful for the people that showed up to help her, but it's like being happy for someone that shows up to the funeral of a loved one. You're happy that they're there, but you're overwhelmed with grief. So we can pray for her safety, pray for her provision, uh, well, other ways to pray. And then, just briefly, one other Christian lady who spoke uh, with her face covered and her voice changed, Uh, she said, when I think of escape, I'm reminded of the bomb explosion. It felt as though at any minute our spirit would depart from our bodies. We were terrified that the crying children would attract the Taliban. They're going door to door, snatching young girls and destroying families. They're searching door-to-door for believers, and when they find them, they kill them on the spot. Who knows when they'll show up on our doorstep? We live in fear that either the Taliban will come for us, or we will die of hunger. My entire family has been surviving on one bowl of lentil soup. Our neighbor's children are young, and I'm wondering how the youngest one is. I have not heard his voice for many days. Dear Lord, do not let them lose hope in a better tomorrow. It is our great desire to join with our brothers and sisters and worship God, but that's not possible. We can only meet our pastor in the dead of night, so no one can identify him and us. But I know that my Jesus and yours is one. Through prayer, we are united as we are in the body of Christ. Carol, would you come and tell us a little bit about Nigeria? Nigeria is currently one of the places where it's been extremely increase in violence.
1: Good morning. I really wasn't fully aware of the persecuted church until about 20 years ago when Jean's parents arrived in Thunder Bay and it was through Phil Howard, Jean's dad, that I became involved with the ministry of Voice of the Martyrs. Since then, I've received regular emails with urgent prayer requests for believers in so many countries that are persecuted for their faith, some making the ultimate sacrifice for our Savior. I want to read the story of a young Nigerian woman, Comfort Jessie, who overcame the pain of losing her father and received the grace to forgive his murderers. On the evening before Easter Sunday, Comfort sat in the enclosed courtyard of her home with her parents, older siblings, and some neighbors. Around 11 p.m., they heard bombing in the distance. Less than an hour later, Boko Haram militants began burning the church next door to them and pounding on the front gate of their home. Comfort's mother, Juliana, helped her husband hide in one of the back bedrooms, covering him with clothes. God, we are in your hands, she prayed. Several militants entered to search the house while others dragged Juliana out into the courtyard, striking the Nigerian woman with their guns and taunting her for believing in Christ. You Christians say God has a son, so call on that son. Today is your last day. Your own life is over. They then forced her to kneel on the ground. They said that if they don't get their man, they would kill her. Comfort's mother said, even though I see your gun, I will not fear you. One of the men gave a shout from inside the house. He'd found Comfort's father. They dragged him out of the house, telling him to renounce Christ. He remained silent. He was ordered to lie down, and they shot him. Then the militants burned the family's home. Juliana lovingly held her dying husband as she prayed. Comfort, 13 at the time, sat with her family, painfully crying in the early morning darkness. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The attack that night was part of Boko Haram's plan to establish an Islamic government across northern Nigeria, ordering Christians to leave. Comfort's family were among the first to pay the price for staying. The family, now homeless, walked for three days until they arrived at a camp for internally homeless. Displaced people. In 2018, Comfort and three of her siblings attended a VOM youth camp, and in the years since being in attendance, Comfort has been able to let go of her anger and pray with sincerity for the members of Boko Haram. She said, I begged God to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. With VOM's help, The family has moved into a new home, and the children are doing well in school. In fact, today, uh, Comfort is going to university and hoping to get a job. Every morning, Comfort and her family gather for devotions and thank God for the help they have received. I didn't really hold on to God as I do now, she says. I love him more now than I did in the past. When Nigerian Christians are asked what their brothers and sisters with greater freedom might do for them, the most often heard response is a simple request to remember them as if they are with as if we are with them and pray they would remain faithful as jean quoted earlier from hebrews remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering
2: a few things in <laughs> this and I'm wondering if we can put the map back up actually. Uh, so this uh, my if uh, my name's Sarah um, and I am a Mac maker. that is my job. <laughs> so I made this using data from open doors um, and so what you were looking at there is actually just degrees by which they categorize the risk level of uh, you know safety. For if you're a Christian in that country. Um, so, some of the ones that we had mentioned, and I don't know if this will reach, but Afghanistan, if you're not familiar, is right up there. And Nigeria is right there. Um, and if you are in the mind of wanting to uh, be praying for the persecuted church and you would like something physical um, to pray with, you can talk to me after, and I will get you a copy of this because I made it. So that is the one thing. <laughs> um, the second was that Nathan asked me to share uh, my family's story. Um, so I'm going to preface this with I know there is a population of other Croatians and, <laughs> and Yugoslavians in Thunder Bay. So. I will try not to offend everyone that has a history in this area. Um, Social, political, and religious issues in that part of the world are very complex, and I'm not gonna try and pretend to be a full expert on all of the dynamics involved in that. However, I'm here today because my family survived persecution in that part of the world before it became uh, not a country anymore. So my grandparents and my aunts and uncles are refugees from a portion of Yugoslavia called Istria. Uh, In that portion of Yugoslavia, um, my granddad married my grandmother, who was actually from a different culture group from him, um, on opposing sides of a very tense and long back and forth war. Um, people in Istria were actually murdered in mass numbers. Um, it was considered a genocide. It was there was crimes against humanity that were brought to trial after World War II, um, but with little actual repercussions for people involved in that. My grandfather father did not want to be involved on either side. He was a follower of Jesus. He wanted to pray for both uh, groups involved. And for this, he was thrown in prison multiple times. Um, Forced labor camps and different things like that. Uh, One evening, they packed up all of their children and fled uh, the country. They crossed the border to a group that didn't like half of the family. (laughs) Um, But they went anyway, and they were able to live in refugee camps for about six years before finally being sponsored to come to Canada Uh, by the Lions Club uh, down in Richmond Hill, uh, Oak Ridge's kind of area. So the reason that my grandfather was actually put in prison was not because of his culture. It wasn't because of his heritage. It was because he wouldn't stop following Jesus, because he wouldn't act in a way in which they wanted him to act to hurt other people. And by the time I was a child and able to converse with my grandfather, he was suffering from Parkinson's. But I always knew that Nono loved Jesus more than anything, and he loved people, and he loved to garden, and he loved to care for people who had less than him. Um, unfortunately, my poor grandmother actually lived the rest of her life in abject fear. Um, the trauma and the experience that she went through of escaping was vastly unpleasant, and uh, she's now with Jesus as well. But. Um, Yeah, so I just, to make it a bit personal, there is hope. There is peace that can come um, at the end of a very long, difficult road. And you can have (laughs) people come out of that 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 still love Jesus and that still want to serve him. So that's my personal story. (laughs) And the country, because Yugoslavia is not a country that exists anymore, um, but the country that I am gonna talk about today is actually Mozambique. Um, my connection with Mozambique, I'm wearing a skirt from, that I made from fabric from there. Um, I have served as a missionary over there um, and still chair a board for an organization that works with women in Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique actually wasn't added until last year to the watch list um, as a country. And as you can see, it is right here, and it's already in the orange. (laughs) Um, Technically, the majority of the population actually is Christian, or would identify as Christian. But last year, uh, in the province actually that my organization was working in, um, in Cabo Delgado, which is like the northern part of that country, uh, was uh, attacked and is suffering still uh, under war and oppression from ISIS. Um, They (laughs) murdered people. They've been blowing up infrastructure and that sort of thing. And so last year we made the very difficult decision actually that because our director um, is actually white, um, which unfortunately makes her a bigger target for ISIS and they would harm the people that we work with more uh, for her being there. So we moved. Uh, As along with most of our staff and a lot of the ladies that we work with to a province more south from there, which is not amazing, but a little bit less dangerous. And we're actually rebuilding our training center. So the organization I chair is called the Liberty Project. uh, And we work with internally displaced women, um, as well as women who are at risk of being abused or trafficked, and we help them gain uh, skills and education and healthcare to be able to get jobs um, and to employ themselves, start their own businesses. And uh, yeah, we've been fairly successful in that. And we've just actually had to start rebuilding a new center to do this. So that's what we'll be doing this year. Um, but in the meantime, a few other uh, organizations that have a more nationals t- trained uh, to work for them are actually using our old building to house uh, and help uh, people who are fleeing from the war going on in the north. So it, our building is still being used. There's still um, Christians being able to reach out and disciple and also just share Jesus uh, with the people there. And that, that is all. So a bit more hopeful. <laughs>
3: I'm just going to grab the stool behind me, hoping that we can settle in for a story. I would say sit back, relax, and hear a story, but today, I'd say lean forward and hear a story. Has anybody uh, here seen Black Hawk Down? Okay, so uh, Black Hawk Down was a sort of famous incident in US military history where they came in and did a hostage rescue, I think, in Somalia. Um, this book right here, here called The Insanity of God. Anybody ever heard a book by that title, Insanity of God? Um, the writer of this book, is his name is Nick Ripkin. He was in Somalia at the time of Black Hawk Down. Uh, him and his family served as missionaries for a long time. And to make a long story short, they ended up coming back to the States and then starting another ministry where they travel around the world hearing stories of persecuted brothers and sisters. And I use that word brothers and sisters, and I hope that as we've listened today, we can understand that this isn't just people on the other side of the world suffering. These are our family. These are our brothers and sisters. And according to the scriptures, we're part of the same body. And that's where Carol and Jean shared the verse that says, when these people are in jail, remember them as if we're there with them. How many of us wish that we would spend more time thinking about them and caring about them. I do. These are our family. Um, And I was going to mention Open Doors briefly. Before I read the story, Open Doors is an organization that does serve these people all over the world. I've had the chance to travel with them to several countries um, and go and visit Christians that are persecuted. And when we visited these people, they say to us, thank you for caring about us. Just the fact that you came and you were willing to book a flight that cost you money and come across the nation and be with us means tons. We didn't fix anything, we just were there. And in a sense, um, praying is one way to be there. It's one way to be there with them. Um, There are multiple ways to get involved, like write letters, like send a voice recording, And that will get taken to people that are in jail, actually. So if you are interested in following up with this more, uh, there are several organizations, One being Open Doors. Come talk to one of the presenters today, and we can help you get hooked up with with that. So this story um, is out of this book, The Insanity of God. And it doesn't represent one country because in this story, I can't share the country, or the book doesn't even share the country. It doesn't share the name of the believer either. And so upstairs, you'll see a map on the back wall, and I think it says to the unknown believers. In other words, there's a lot of people that can't say their name. They can't talk about their faith. Um, It's dangerous. It's too dangerous to talk about that. So lean forward and hear this story. This story I've never forgotten. One man agreed to let me interview him if we could meet in a secure, non-public setting where I would not even be able to see his face or attempt to learn his name. I accepted his conditions. I had learned to let those in the greatest danger set the security parameters. I followed his instructions and traveled to another city. Finding this specified apartment building, I climbed three sets of stairs, knocked on a door, and walked into a small, unfurnished living room. I saw only the silhouette of a man. He stood in total shadow behind a large potted plant on the far corner. A bare light bulb hung from the ceiling between us. Its glare in my face further obscured my vision. Those were the ground rules. I could not really see the man at all, but I could hear him perfectly, so I had no problem taking notes. He told me that I was permitted to record our interview. He insisted, however, that I not try to identify him, find out where he lived, or use his real name. I listened to his story for about six hours. I quickly concluded that he was probably the toughest man I ever met in my life. During an earlier invasion of his country, the man told me that he had led a squad of 15 soldiers committed to repel foreign invaders he calmly recounted his experience. I took great joy in the name of Allah when I could sneak up behind an enemy soldier at night, silently cut his throat and allow his blood to wash over my hands as an offering to Almighty God. His descriptions were so graphic, yet so matter of fact, that at one point I almost unintentionally asked the question, how many people have you killed? I stopped counting when the number reached 100, he confessed. Those were the people that I killed personally, not in battle. My mind boggled at that number. He went on to tell me that after a time, he started to have a dream. It was a recurring dream that came to him over and over again. He dreamed of spots of blood on his hands. Night after night, he would have the same dream. Over time, the spots of blood grew larger. Eventually, he was dreaming that the blood was running down and dripping off his arms. He realized early on that in his dreams, he was imagining the blood of all those people he had killed. The dreams were so vivid and so disturbing that he dreaded falling asleep at night. I really thought I was going insane, he told me. When I began to see the blood during my waking hours, I was even more upset, and no amount of washing or scrubbing with sand or pumice would get the blood off. I soon became convinced that I was going absolutely insane, he went on. Then one night, the dream changed. As I stood there, helplessly watching the blood run down my arms, I also saw in my dream a man standing before me. He was a man clothed in white with a scarred head. He also had scarred hands, a scarred side, and scarred feet. The scarred man said, I am Jesus the Messiah, and I can get the blood off if you will just find me and believe in me. The dream told him to find Jesus. He had no idea how to do that. Still, he began his search. It took him over a year to locate a copy of the scripture. It took him even longer for him to understand what he was reading. From time to time, he would find people who could answer some of his questions. And finally, this man said that he had found Jesus. When he had invited Jesus into his heart, the man said, I got the blood off. Jesus took that blood onto himself. Immediately, his dreams ended. At that point, he didn't have anybody to disciple him. In his country, there was no church that he could attend, no Bible study that he might join. On his own, he kept reading and studying the Bible, and he did everything that the Holy Spirit told him to do. Eventually, he began to smuggle Bibles, Bible portions, other Christian materials, and even the Jesus film over the mountains from another country into his own. He did that for two years. One day, he rounded a bend in one of the high mountain passes and found himself face to face on a narrow trail with the squad of 15 men that he used to lead. They had been on the lookout for their old commander ever since he had deserted them and disappeared. It had even been reported that he was now a traitor to Islam. Now they found him. They threw him to the ground and began to beat him. It was their plan to beat him to death. In that squad of of Muslim militia men, however, there was another new believer in Jesus Christ. No one knew about his faith. That man boldly spoke up to caution the others. He, He said, stop, let's think about this. Maybe we're being foolish. If we kill our old commander here and now, we may never know who he's working with, who the traitors are on this side of the border, or on that side of the border. So let me take him down to, to the town at the bottom of the mountain, the man continued. I can get him patched up and hold him prisoner. When he is well enough to walk again, we can interrogate him, torture him slowly if we have to, until he tells us what we need to know. We might learn something important if we are patient and do this right. His suggestion was convincing. The other men thought that his plan sounded reasonable. They left their old commander with his with this secret believing good Samaritan. He loaded him on a donkey and smuggled him down and out of the mountains. He patched him up and saved his life by letting him resume the work that he had been doing. As I listened to this incredible story, I assumed that the storyteller would never be more than a shadow and a voice for me, and I was fine with that. But I'd interviewed so many people that I could sometimes hear what people were not saying and what things they were uncomfortable talking about. At the end of almost six hours of listening to this man's life story, I I expressed my respect and appreciation for his willingness to talk with me. I told him how inspired I was by his testimony, and I praised God with him for all that the Lord had done in and through him. I told him that because of his testimony, my life and faith would never be the same again. At the same time, I probed just a bit into his story. I said, you have told me that you are married, that you have sons, that you have led your wife and your children to Christ and that you have even baptized them. What I'm wondering is this, where do they fit into your ministry? You haven't talked about that. How do they help you? What is happening with your family? I was not expecting what happened next The man leapt out of the darkness and suddenly stood face to face with me. He clamped his scarred hands down tight on my shoulders and his fierce, dark eyes bored like lasers into mine. I instinctively thought of my earlier question about the number of men that he had killed. For hours, I had listened to his inspiring story, but now I was terrified as he shook me and demanded to know, how can God ask it? Tell me, how can God ask it? I think maybe that's when my heart started beating again. I realized that maybe he was angry at God, not me. My confusion cleared up even more as he went on to explain, I have given him everything. My body has been broken. I have been jailed. I have been starved. I have been beaten. I have been left for dead. His words sounded a lot like the Apostle Paul's recitation of all that he had suffered in the service of Christ. I have even been willing to die for Jesus, he pleaded. But do you know what I fear when I go to bed at night? What keeps me awake? And what actually terrifies me is the thought that God might ask of my wife and my children what I have already willingly given him. How can he ask it? Tell me, how could God ask that of my wife and children? I paused for a few moments and prayed that the Lord would guide my words as I responded. Brother, my wife is safe in Kentucky, I said. My two living sons are in school doing well. I told him a little of Timothy's story and how Timothy had died while on a mission trip in in Somalia due to not being able to get good medical treatment. Finally, I told him, I personally cannot answer your question But I would ask you another question that I've had to ask myself. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your wife and your children? He was undoubtedly the toughest man I ever met. He began to sob. He wrapped his arms around me, buried his face in my shoulder, and wept. When he finally stopped, he stepped back and wiped away his tears. He seemed angry at himself for his display of emotion. Then he looked me in the eyes again, nodded and declared, Jesus is worth it. He is worth my life, my wife's life, and he is worth the lives of my children. I have got to get them involved in what God is doing with me. And with that the toughest man I ever met, said goodbye. He turned and walked out of the room. My encounter with this man was more than a dozen years ago now. The last I heard, he and his family were still doing for the kingdom of God, the work that he described to me. And he is still the toughest man I have ever met. And we're just going to play a song that was written, reference this story. And so I... I think I would just challenge us with this is that regardless of where we live, that's a question we can ask ourselves. Is Jesus worth it? And then as we think about that for ourselves, um, remember that for a lot of people that could cost everything, that statement that Jesus is worth it. So I hope you're blessed as you uh, listen to this song.
0: A phrase in there, they stole my child and said they'd give her back if I just deny. I don't know about you, but I, I think often as I listen to these stories and think, I have no idea whether I would have the strength to stand in the face of persecution and especially to stand in the face of of my family being uh, persecuted or abused. In Nigeria, that Carol talked with us about, hundreds of young girls have been uh, abducted and taken away and sold into sex slavery. And so the, the suffering of people themselves is of course terrible, but when they face the, the, the um, threats of suffering for their family, it's beyond imagination. Thankfully, God is able to give grace but that's one of the key ways we can pray for many of these people is is for the suffering of their family members. Many of them have lost family members. Many of them, as I said, for instance, in Nigeria and Pakistan have had their family members abducted. They don't know where they are. They have a pretty good idea that they've been sold into slavery. And so that's one of the ways we can pray. We're just going to take a little bit of time here and pray for these four groups. So let me encourage you to uh, actually just before we move, I'll mention something else. But let me encourage you just to move to one of these areas. Uh, This is Nigeria over here. Carol will give us two or three guidelines for prayer. You've already heard a number of these things, so you know a number of ways to pray. Afghanistan is back there, so we'll be gathering to pray for Afghanistan, Mozambique is over here, and Sarah will be giving you some thoughts there. And then upstairs is the unknown nation, such as the nation of this man that Jeremy was talking about, and where people cannot uh, tell their names, they cannot tell where they're from. They're secret believers because to be unsecret, if I can use that word, would mean certain death for them. So in just a moment, we'll, we'll move and just spend a little bit of time. If you're not comfortable in praying aloud, you don't have to feel any pressure. Just let me encourage you to join one of the groups and just agree in your heart uh, as others pray if you're not uh, comfortable in praying aloud. But Jeremy already mentioned some of the ways that we can support these people. And there are, there are a number of different ways, some key ones. One is to pray. The number one thing that persecuted believers ask for when they're asked what they would like or what they need is prayer. They say, pray for us. And many of them simply say, pray that we will not uh, renounce our faith, that we'll have the strength to stand strong for Jesus to the end. So pray. Secondly, give. We can give to ministries that are serving these people. Voice of the Martyrs that Carol mentioned is... Uh, I really appreciate the voice of the martyrs. They never ask for money. Um, but they take money and they need money because they, for instance, they have safe houses in places like Pakistan and other places uh, where where they help, especially uh, mothers and and girls escape from persecution. Barnabas Aid, which I just learned about recently, is in the process right now of helping. Afghans, who are believers, escape from from, Afghan, uh, from Afghanistan or from the surrounding nations where they have perhaps already made it across the border. So those are just three groups, Open Doors, v- Voice of the Martyrs, and Barnabas Aid. So we can give, we can advocate, we can speak to others and encourage others to, to speak out for the persecuted believers. We can write letters or, as Jeremy mentioned, send a voice message And so if you wanna get information on how to connect with any of these ministries, uh, please feel free to speak to one of us and we'll help put you in touch there. So let's now just move into these four groups, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Mozambique, and an unknown nation up there. And we'll spend a few minutes together in prayer, then the worship, Uh, leaders will come and just lead us in a closing song. When they come forward, let me just encourage you just to stand up where you are. You can move the chairs now uh, into a circle, and then when we come to the closing song, just stand up and turn so that you can see the the words at the beginning. So let's stand up right now, everyone, and then just go ahead and move to one of the areas uh, to the nation of your choosing, and we'll pray together.
3: Just to mention as well that the movie tonight will include work in the country of Afghanistan. So um, it's sort of a follow up to tonight as well, or to today, sorry.
4: <laughs>